need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. China Business Cast, episode 65. How you doing, Shlomo? Back in Israel, huh? It was great hey, to... Hey, how are you? Yeah, it was great to it was <laughs> great to spend some time with you. And and we... Uh, today's we're talking about video, and we made some video together, too. And and uh, amazing things. So so it was really a great trip to have you there. I had a great time uh, in this trip, spending time with you in Shenzhen, getting to know your family and where you're recording from right now, your <laughs> home office. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and uh, obviously we had TechCrunch going on, so uh, I met all the Shenzhen startup scene, which was my purpose for coming to Shenzhen, and also had some other meetings. And you know, later on, I went to Shanghai. They had the Mobile World Congress there, uh, which is the original one is in Barcelona, and that's the largest one in the world for mobile, run by GSMA. And uh, they have about 100,000 plus people there. So in China, it's a tiny one of 65,000. Um, so that was that was a very good one as well. Met some clients there, uh, saw some new cool technologies. And um, also they have a, a section there, which is called Four Years From Now, and that's their brand for startups. So it was interesting also to go around these startups uh, and see what they do uh, speaking with them. And one special event that I was in as well in Shanghai was the Vive X demo day. Vive X is the is the accelerator for for the Vive device of HTC. This is for AR VR, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. We had Alvin on our show a few episodes ago. So he's uh, leading Vive in in China, and Vive X is part of their their thing. Uh, so I met him there. He was on stage, and. Uh, saw some really interesting things you know vr is like the the experience is so much better than what it used to be i was really impressed i was really really impressed yeah i mean uh, i wish i could have joined you there but uh we had a great time here in TechCrunch, and we made tons of content so i think i'm ex- i think we're both excited to to get these next few shows we have quite a few great interviews as well as some solos with you and me and uh it was great it was really great so <laughs> Yes. Uh, guys, tell us what do you think about the solos one. Uh, we wonder uh, which formats you prefer. We're probably going to alternate between the two, the both, uh, let's say, formats. And uh, we're interested to hear what you guys think. Yeah, also at the Mobile World Congress, I was uh, I had a chance to judge the Mobile Monday competition, startup competition. So there were four startups, so that was fun. Now, I... I bump into this a lot. I mean, I've I've already judged in several competition, and um, the interesting thing that I've learned is that you have to stick out, even if your technology is not the most advanced, but it's something that you have to be unique about. And I especially bumped into this about a month ago, or even even more. There was a Guangzhou competition in Israel, uh, where they choose winners from all around the world. Then there is the global competition in Guangzhou. We are contemplating which of the Israeli startups to send to send into Guangzhou and give them the prize uh, and eventually one of the things that at least I voted for is is their uniqueness and they were unique more than the others I mean the others had great technology but kind of similar to the other things that you'll see in China food pollution air pollution so I figured there would be a lot of those stuff 
in the competition. And that new one was uh, was really unique and actually won the first place. So that's a note for entrepreneurs out there going to the competitions. Uh, if you manage to put in a really good, unique value proposition there, you should do that. You should use that. Definitely, definitely. Speaking about startups, we have... Yeah. What about Rise? Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> going right into Rise Conference. Would be next. <laughs> I mean, I contemplate if I should go or not. <laughs> I know. It would be great to have you again. But, of course, I understand it's a, quite a trip. But, yeah, I mean, I'm really, really excited. We have some, you know, we're not, we, I mean, Rise has some amazing speakers. And I'll be I'll be there again. I'll do both the pub crawl. Cap- you doing the pub crawl? Yeah. I like, I, like, uh, I like being a pub crawl captain. So, I... They'll start off. That was fun last year. Yeah, it'll start the event off, right? And then we will be there for the whole thing. So in Hong Kong, uh, riseconf.com. And uh, hope to see some of the listeners there. Yeah, get in touch with Mike. Either through the group or whatever uh, we got. You can you can contact him. We also have nice review from somebody. Um, so I'm going to read it. So it says, great guest speakers, five stars. And this is by Spunderweb from Australia. And we got we got it at the end of June. Uh, and he says, fantastic job, guys. Great guest speakers of entrepreneurs across multiple fields with useful tips and valuable experience to share. Gives you a much more immediate and versatile picture of the business environment in China today. So thank you very much for that, SponderWeb. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, guys, leave us um, more reviews. It helps us to gain more traction and get to more people and be out there. And also, uh, we have our Patreon campaign, uh, which we need you guys to back us up. This one is on patreon.com slash China Business Cast, or we also have, what, what's the link for China Business Cast? It will redirect. Chinabusinesscast.com slash support to support our show, support the community. Okay. So Patreon is a company that helps creators like us, podcasters, artists to create content and you can uh, pledge and, and support us in different levels. We're currently going for the first goal, which is covering our costs. So it's right there. And uh, we want to obviously get to more goals so you can see all those on that page. Uh, but please go check it out. And uh, we'd love if you can back us up. Definitely, definitely. Mike, who's our guest today? Yeah, so this one is, is something I've, we've been trying to get him on the show for a, quite some time. Jim Fields. He is the, a video guy, video video expert in China. He is the founder, founder and managing director of Relay, uh, which is specializing in creating stunning pieces of video content for large tech brands and disruptive startups. So he's gotten millions of views inside of China for clients such as Baidu, Tencent, Lenovo, and others. So I'm excited to hear this show. Uh, Shlomo did the interview uh, with him, and, and uh, let's listen in. Tune in. So hello, everybody, and welcome to another China Business Cast. This is Shlomo today here. And we have today a special guest. He's also a friend from Beijing, and his name is Jim Fields. Hey, Jim. Hi, Shlomo. How's it going, man? Very, very good. Great to have you. I brought you in today because we want to speak with you about best practices for video in China and specifically on WeChat. Mm. You know all about this. Jim is the founder and managing director of Relay, and they specialize in creating stunning pieces of video content. I was actually watching some of those just before their recording, and indeed they are. Uh, it's indeed for, it's both for large companies, brands, and disruptive start businesses. They got millions of views in China for clients such as Baidu, Tencent, and Lenovo. 
so that's from your LinkedIn profile. And yeah, the, the videos are actually really amazing. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having uh, me on the China Business Cast. It's great to be on the show. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to the programs you guys have produced previously. And uh, yeah, just feel honored to have the chance to talk with you. Obviously, Shlomo, you and I have known of each other for a long time um, as fellow yeah. entrepreneurs here in Beijing um, and, and guys who do stuff in China. Um, and I admire your work a lot. So, yeah, really excited to get the chance to talk today. Thank you. Great having you. I want to ask you first about, um, yeah, I mentioned WeChat and video is very hot on Facebook, obviously. But are there any special trends on WeChat when you're going for video there? Yeah, well, WeChat is interesting because it offers a lot of tools for content and transmission of content. But in terms of video, it actually isn't fully optimized yet as a video sharing platform in the same way that, for instance, Facebook is or the same way as some other Western platforms that integrate video more natively. Uh, if you think about WeChat, you know, and the points of contact in WeChat, you have the, you know, the chat function where you have the ability to chat with individuals. You also have the uh, official accounts where you can interact mostly with brands or people who have registered an official account in that way. Or you can think about the moments feed, which, you know, for those people outside of China is a little bit akin to the Facebook news feed where you have like all the different postings that come predominantly from your friends network, but also occasionally from brands that can sponsor uh, posts that would then appear in your moment. The sponsorship is relatively new. It's, I think it's just a year now. Exactly. But I think the interesting thing about WeChat, and as I said before, the thing that's interesting compared to, for instance, other platforms is in the West, when you think about Facebook, um, you still have like a high population of people who are using the service on the desktop. So the form factor of Facebook and the form factor of some of these Western platforms is much more desktop centric. Uh -huh. um, which also allows for video to be played in a much larger window on a much larger screen. Um, and I think I'm going to mention this because I actually think it's really important because the actually plays out in terms of how the shots are framed, how the graphics play out, the styles, the communication, the editing. Um, a lot of these things are very different when you compare them to China. Because um, for a Western consumer, if you looked at a lot of the content that comes out in China, you might think it was really noisy or lots of stuff on screen happening at the same time or garish or maybe even a bit tacky. Mm -hmm. But actually it's because in WeChat and a lot of platforms in China, you're competing visually for attention against a lot of other bright and shiny objects. Um, so it's interesting <laughs> when you look at WeChat because uh, it's kind of a visual representation of the chaos of China because brands are very desperately trying to differentiate themselves mm -hmm. from the competition through uh, increasingly like, eye-popping visuals or, or using tools like HTML5 or other tools to kind of play with the format or push the envelope mm -hmm. or um, really draw eyeballs because it's just harder and harder in such a competitive and crowded media marketplace to get attention from consumers. I see. Um, so anyway, just to go back to what we were talking about before in terms of the three points of connection, uh, in terms of the chat feed, you know, you can interact with brands in the context of chat bots, but I'm sure that's something you've talked about with other guests. You can have in the moments feed the ability to buy media space as a brand. But as you mentioned, this is a relatively new program and the threshold for doing this is quite high because it's a bit expensive to to buy the space. And How also, much is it? What's the starting, what's the starting price? My, my most recent understanding is roughly around 50,000 RMB. Uh, for your most kind of basic media buy option. Um, okay, that's about $8,000 for... Approximately $8,000. dollars Yeah. Um, but if you compare that against, you know, for instance, other modes of promotion, 
you know, again, in Western markets, there's, I think, a little bit more of a DIY uh, thing you can do, whether mm-hmm. it's with like YouTube or Facebook or, you know, other tools in Western markets to disseminate content. I think in China, the, the, the barriers to entry and thresholds are, are higher. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, going back to the moment speed, you can have stuff in the moment speed. Or if you're a brand that has an official account, you also have the ability to upload content and then post that in these kind of blog-like uh, official account feed posts. And then those posts will be like kind of blog post format. And then your, your videos would be integrated in line with text or images in those posts that would go on your official account feed. I see. Um, so there's a lot of avenues to put out video, but I think the thing you'll notice if you compare them all to Facebook is still uh, video is it's not, for instance, the same way it is on Facebook where you scroll down your newsfeed um, and basically everything just plays automatically and you see lots of moving images and those images take up a lot of screen space. In WeChat, you actually have a lot more clicks and a lot more energy that has to go in in order to start the video playing or to get the video to play full screen. Even in the moment's feed, if a brand is going to spend money to put something in the moment's feed, you're not getting a full screen video. It's mm-hmm. a small video frame that has four white borders on all sides. Um, and on a tiny mobile screen, which is the point at which most Chinese consumers are interacting with video, um, it's a very small, it's like the size of a postage stamp basically that you're looking at. Um, so this is why I'm <laughs> emphasizing the video is not quite optimized in China on WeChat yet, which oh, as a guy who produces video is a little bit of a frustrating thing. <laughs> I was about to ask you about the length of time for videos. So I guess these would be very short that what you aim yeah. for. Generally the way that it works in terms of paid moments feed videos is that you'd have like a five to 10 second loopable, uh, kind of opening frame. And then that could be a clickable window. And then if you click into that window as a consumer, that could either take you into an HTML5 experience or that could take you into like a longer form version of the video that you were watching initially. Okay. Okay. The other interesting thing about these branded posts, not to go like too, too much into the weeds, but one other interesting <laughs> element is that ordinarily on WeChat, if you uh, are looking through your moments feed and a friend posts a particular item, whether it's text or image or link, you can comment on that and you can see the posts of yourself uh, as a consumer. And you can also see like, for instance, if someone else in your feed who is a mutual friend, if they like, or if they comment on another friend's status update, you can see one another's responses. But unlike Facebook, you actually aren't able to see the responses of all the other people who are friends with that person. So right. if you think about Facebook, you post an item there. Basically, if you have your crazy aunt in Kansas and you have your coworker and you have your mom, all these people can see. So now they can be friends. Uh, In Facebook, they would be friends. Yeah, in Facebook, they could all be friends. (laughs) It's interesting, though, in China, because uh, the people who who comment on posts can only see posts from other people you actually mutually know. Um, But for whatever reason, it's interesting because Tencent has opened it up so that if there's a corporation who posts something, suddenly you can see basically everyone who's in your feed or like it's oh. a much more open system whereby you can't see what friends of friends are posting, but suddenly for instance, a corporation might post something and then you'll see all the engagement from everyone who's on your newsfeed. Um, so you can see these posts that commonly have like dozens of likes or hundreds of likes and hundreds of comments. Mm-hmm. If it's a particularly evocative ad. And I think it's an interesting way to see how much, how sticky a particular ad is, is like just to see how many people actually engaged with it, how many people commented, how many people, liked it how many people engaged with it in some way i see let's talk a bit about um 
engagement between between videos for foreigners and video for Chinese people. So as example, a way to engage in the West would be asking a question in the video and then you kind of mm. get 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 that you know that voice in the mind of a person answering the question or something like that. That's kind of an engagement. While in China, uh, people are usually um, they're used to uh, listening to a teacher, so it's just speaking and then somebody just li- listening. Any other examples of engagement specifically for China people can incorporate? Yeah. Well, I think, again, this is a complicated question because the media landscape is so different in China. Right. Um, if you think about interactive video, China is actually way ahead of the West if you think about the like profusion of these live streaming platforms that exist in China. Mm-hmm. So you have this phenomenon in China where you have like people and there's this exists to some extent with Periscope or with YouTube or tools in the United States or other geographies. But in China, it's this huge thing where people uh, who produce content will just stream themselves, right? They'll get their phone and they'll use these, what they're, what are called gerbil or live streaming platforms to broadcast what they think are programs or maybe just their, their own lives, right? Whether it's, um, cooking or exercising or any number of things. I was at the gym the other day and I saw a guy in the corner with two phones and he had two separate phones and he was streaming to two separate Dribboa platforms. Um, and then as a mode of interaction, all the people who were watching the show at that time uh, were giving him gifts. They were sending him these digital electronic gifts that they have to spend money for. Mm-hmm. And then some portion of the gift that he receives, he converts into money and some, you know, unseemly, ungodly portion of that gift is then converted straight into money that goes back into the pocket of the the Dribboa, the, the live broadcasting platform. Um, which is interesting because in China, like the the... I think this is probably a result of some of the media controls that exist in China. You usually, you know, you have like television programs or officially sanctioned medias that are uh, heavily influenced by the uh, sort of unique political system in China in terms of the content and the stuff that you can and can't see. And these live streaming platforms suddenly have the ability to like have an unfiltered or relatively unfiltered stream of somebody actually living their life and communicating right. in a colloquial way, in a modern way. Um, and you know, it's a lot more dynamic. It's also interactive because you can actually click and interact with the person that you're speaking. Um, so when you talk about engagement, I think if I think, think about, you know, video and engagement in China, I think a lot more about live streaming, um, and video, because if you think, you know, more back into the moments feed, you think into WeChat again, I think WeChat is still like really not a highly advanced tool for video engagement. If you think about YouTube, you know, you can have, for instance, comments uh on the youtube channel and the best comments get voted up and get voted at the top and then you have sort of a page ranking based on the quality of the comments well ostensibly the quality although youtube comments are like a wasteland of (laughs) racism and sexism and terrible (laughs) human behavior uh but in general i guess what i'm saying is that uh engagement with video content via wechat i think you can see that, you know, like I said, either through branded moments feed posts or through uh, the comments people could make on official accounts. But it's it's relatively unsophisticated. Um, I see. And it also it, I think the culture is just a bit different. You know, this whole culture, for instance, that exists in the West, you have like YouTubers or influencers. You have people whose whole business is basically just to produce content. And uh, they post, for instance, short form buying content or video content that lives on YouTube and aggregate these huge base of followers. I think in China, all of that is shifted over into live streaming. Um, so you have these live streamers who are extremely popular for any number of reasons. By the way, is, is it um, 
uh, this comes up to the next question. Do you think it's it's helpful to show Westerners or Westernism for brands in their videos? I mean, I think that uh, at past times, China was looking up at the West and you know, want to be like the West. But at recent years, I think that they it, they have their own thing and it's kind of different and, and they're not looking, looking up to anymore. Uh, as you said, they're in some ways much more advanced, uh, definitely technological. Mm. So I'm kind of thinking if this is helpful or not to show these kind of things right now in videos. Yeah, it's a really interesting and kind of complicated question. And it also depends highly on the, the level of sophistication for the client. Um, I think for us, the thing that we see is, you know, with Relay and our business is that we're working with a lot of Chinese technology companies. Um, and these particular companies, in, particularly in the hardware space, are interested in finding a way to not become non-Chinese brands, uh, but to become global brands. So in the past, uh, I think like there was, as you said, a big thing in China whereby if any company in China was making an ad, whether it was a lifestyle brand or a car brand, they would endeavor to get Western talent to appear on camera to, to give the sense of in China, what you'd call Yangxi-ness or, you know, Guozihua-ness, these kind of like foreign feeling, you know, as a, as a sort of symbol of yeah. like Western-ness or international-ness or premium-ness. Um, and I think that era has passed. Um, although you'll still see that sometimes in second and third tier cities in China. So like they'll hire foreigners to come work as butlers at real estate developments and open doors and do all the wacky stuff. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the situation now is in the past, Chinese companies were really trying to like go hardly against this notion of being seen as a Chinese company. And the way that they would do that would be to put foreign talent in their films or their advertisements, whether that's, you know, for instance, still images they put magazines or television commercials they put on TV. I think now, as opposed to trying to become Westernized, I think Chinese brands are trying to become international. So what does that mean? Um, You think about uh, just in terms of the casting decisions, for instance, that they would make now, I think a really good reference would be like Samsung. So Samsung being a Korean company, they, you know, over the last 10, 15 years have really transcended the status of having been seen as being a Korean company. And now they're just another global manufacturer that makes awesome products. Um, Or you think about the Japanese brands that, for instance, were big, you know, as spread around the world during the 90s, whether it's Sony or Philips, um, that originally had that identity as like a Japanese brand, but have transcended that and tried to become, you know, in, in many cases, successfully become just a global brand that doesn't actually, in the minds of many consumers, have an association with the home country. I think right now you have a crop of Chinese companies like Huawei or, you know, for instance, ZTE or to some extent Xiaomi that are really interested in becoming global brands. And that doesn't mean not appealing to Chinese consumers, but I think it means appealing to Chinese consumers plus European consumers, plus Southeast Asian consumers, plus Western consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get to have a lot more uh, global identity. And that could mean that some of their collateral and advertising material does target China, right? Um, But it could also mean that they're totally assimilate and target the West. I think one Chinese company that's done a great great example of that uh, as of late is Cheetah Mobile. Mm-hmm. Cheetah Mobile was uh, originally starting as a business that that focused more on China, but over the last several years, they've really successfully pivoted to market their products to the West to the extent that a lot of people in the West don't even, first of all, they don't even know that they're a Chinese company. And you know, I've had situations where I've talked to people in Silicon Valley or the West, and you tell them that Cheetah Mobile is actually a Chinese brand, and they're shocked. They had no original awareness of that. We see the CEO a lot of time in a lot of times is in Israel. He visits here quite often. I think. Yeah. 
So it's interesting because I think like, you know, foreigners used to be kind of accessories in videos to make Chinese brands, you know, feel more international for Chinese people. And <laughs> I think like over time it's really shifted such that, um, it's not really about just, you know, putting on a patina of foreignness into your videos. It's actually really almost at like an institutional or cultural level. Like how do you actually develop your company to make it more, uh, more global, more international, more globally distributed and not strictly Chinese. And I think the more that brands or companies like are able to, expand in that way, the more successful they'll be. And there's a lot of, you know, stories along the way of companies that weren't able to do that. You know, if you think recently about Leico and some of the stories that have come out about their launch in the U.S., um, I think that's a really good example of a Chinese company that really had strong ambitions to do something abroad, but was unable to truly localize, was unable to find an appropriate mix between, you know, the Chinese management style and their internal company politics and structure and like the business realities of, how to enter another market. So. I think that WeChat also has this kind of problem. I mean, they're trying to expand overseas and they're trying to get foreign talents and they're not mm. managing to be truly international. That's, that's how I perceive it. I agree with you. I mean, I think also it's a first mover thing. I mean, and you know more about the app space than I do, but uh, I think a lot of people in the West think that it's all about the sharing of data with the Chinese government. But at least from my circle of people, people are already sort of assuming that their data is going to be shared with some government, whether it's you know, the NSA in the United States or the PSB in China or whoever. I don't think like necessarily that is the reason why people would not be comfortable with a particular app. Maybe I've been in China for too long, but I think more of it is actually about familiarity and also just like the problem of you wanting to be on the same service that your friends are on. Right. Yes. So if everyone in your circle is on, you know, WeChat, like every expat in China, then inevitably that's where you're going to go. Yes. So I think in, in many ways it's a matter of necessity. It's a matter of like who's in your network. But I, yeah, I agree. I think Tencent like has spent a huge amount of effort to try to do that. They did like a multi-million dollar deal with Lionel Messi, right? Previously mm -hmm. to try to break into uh, South American markets. I think Brazil specifically previously and, and was just totally unable to, to break through even in what could have been a relatively accessible market. So I think it's really, really hard to do well. Yeah, they're still doing well. They just released their report. They're still doing well, so I'm not really worried. Oh, yeah, they're doing <laughs> well in China. But I think everyone has the same question, which is, can they make it right. out of China? Yes. Uh, they, they, the interesting thing, like, you know, and not to, I don't know, I don't want to take too much time with our interview uh, with them, is that they have certain products at Tencent that are becoming globally successful, right? So you could talk about, for instance, the acquisition of Supercell. Is that an example? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. But I think, for instance, uh, they have this, uh, what's it called? The English name, Princes of Honor or, or something honor-related. Um, Kings of Honor. Kings of Honor? Yeah, I think it's Kings of Honor. Okay. Um, and, yeah. Wangzi Rongyao is the Chinese name. But basically, like, the, the, the game itself has become, like, incredibly successful in many places outside of China. Um, and I think like there could be a, a argument to be made for specifically like gaming and the possibility and potential of gaming and games coming out of China and spreading around the rest of the world. Uh, and I think that's a relatively unexplored area. It's not an area you hear a lot of people talking about, but I think it is an area where, um, yeah, there's a lot of potential growth and a lot of innovation happening in China. Okay, we'll, we'll move to the next question. Just last comment about this is, is that... Basically, what you're saying is that the strategy for WeChat to for Tencent to expand WeChat overseas is buying WhatsApp. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, it's a little late for that, isn't it? Well, they can buy it, you know, just for the right price. Uh, Facebook yeah. will, will sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Like the China Business Cast and want to get involved? We have special offers for supporters of the show, starting from just one U.S. dollar and up. We have something for everyone. Check out all the different ways to engage at www.chinabusinesscast.com slash support. That's www.chinabusinesscast.com slash support. Thanks. I want to ask you about um, the, what are the most successful video genres in Chinese video? Any particular ones that people should pay attention to well uh yeah i think i mean it's a really good question there's like a huge amount of content that that gets shared i think like the the content that's less interesting for marketers or people who are doing marketing is like the stuff that people actually watch um so if you ride the subway in beijing or you're just around the city people watch an incredible volume of tv that they stream through their mobile devices right whether it's like chinese docudrama shows or soap operas yes. or uh pre-recorded you know uh, Korean dramas, or to some extent, like Western programs that then have, uh, you know, for instance, subtitles added TV watching on the mobile is like huge. That alone is just like a massive area because mm-hmm. data is relatively cheap in China. And, uh, it's like incredibly hard to get around, you know, for instance, Beijing or a lot of major Chinese cities because of the traffic situation. So people like to kind of tunnel into their devices and just watch stuff to like kill time and deal with their commute and yes. get around the city. Subway. Uh, you see that on subway. Absolutely. So that's one area. I think another one in terms of like commercial content, uh, live streaming, as we talked about before, is like, you know, really kind of burgeoning like thing that I think is going to continue to grow going forward. Um, in terms of like, you know, more kind of successful commercial or advertising style content, like the, the most successful stuff that we know of or that we've ever seen is stuff that tends to focus on either number one, like cultural insight or number two, that communicates some sort of story. Um, and I think the most, the most successful ones tend to do a bit of both. Um, you know, for instance, like recently Didi Dachula did a campaign about, um, this, this system that they have to check identities of people that are on the platform, whether it's drivers or potential riders. And the way that it worked is it's like a three part, uh, system. So for instance, like if you register to become a driver, on the DB system, you have like three various checks that have to take place. One of them is your Chinese Shenzhenzhong, your personal ID. Uh, another one is some sort of like permit that you get that certifies you as a, as a actual cab driver. And third is your driver's license. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned those in the right order, but essentially there's these three particular IDs that all need to be in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like the, the advertising message they wanted to communicate. Um, and the part where it got interesting was, they created a idea around this where you had a Chinese uh, family. So you have a daughter and her father and mother, and then you have a young man who's attempting to romance the daughter. And they're all at the first dinner together, right? This first awkward dinner where it's like meet the parents. Yeah. And they're all sitting down together. And, you know, for instance, the girl, she introduces the guy and he has this kind of sheepish look on his face. And then the girl's dad immediately, as he looks at this young guy, he, he has this just really sort of demeaning, uh, disappointed look. He just looks at him and just thinks, "Ugh, you know, this is not the right guy. You can tell from his facial expression. And then suddenly the young man, he pulls out uh, this large, uh, you know, for instance, this big uh, red 
permit. And you realize that the permit that he's holding is actually like a certification that he's the owner of a house, right? Which in China is like sort of shorthand for being like financially successful. Yeah. And then following after that, uh, the guy pulls out a small like black object. You're not sure what it is. And then he pushes a button on it and it flips open. You realize he's holding like the electronic key for Mercedes Benz automobile. <laughs> and then shortly after that, the next scene is this young man uh, has a like a billfold that's like filled with credit cards. I mean, this all sounds like a little bit like heavy handed for a Western viewer. But in China, you have this expression that's like, if you know, if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have savings, then suddenly you're like a very desirable mate or life mate or life partner. <laughs> and they connected like this very prosaic, boring reality about car drivers in China and their, uh, you know, sort of verification process to this unique, like Chinese cultural insight about the fact that parents in China are very pragmatic and they have a lot of requirements for their uh, suitors of their daughters or, or sons. Right. And I thought for me that that was like just brilliant marketing because so many brands would never, first of all, they wouldn't have that creative idea. But second of all, it's a bit of a risk, right. To like touch on such a hot button social issue to connect that to your branded purpose. Definitely. But because of that risk, they were able to like create, huge amounts of buzz and they did this organically. You know, the, the folks at DD, they, I think probably seeded it with two or three, what are called Davi in China, these like big well-known social media accounts. But the, in terms of expenditure and ad buy, like the ROI on the whole campaign was massive just because they were able to like really touch into that kind of cultural insight and also a story, right. About two people, about that nervous moment when you meet the parents of your boyfriend or girlfriend and, and what that's like. Mm-hmm. Where would they, um, I mean, either brands or you do this for your clients, where, where are you uploading those videos to which platforms? What are the most popular? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we, we do a bit of both. So generally as a production studio or a creative production house like we are, we would create the content and then we would deliver it to our clients. So for their marketing purposes, it would be up to them to you know, disseminate it across their social media platforms or their website or... Uh, Chinese platforms or Western platforms, wherever it ends up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the the sort of short version is that our work stops by delivering the video to the client and then the dissemination and the distribution is something they would handle on their own or potentially with their social media partner or their in-house social media team. I see. I see. But but the um, ones that people would watch most would be probably Yoku or, or Tencent platform. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Yoku tends to be the market leader. It kind of depends on the content. So, oh. like, uh, the for instance, if they're watching like long form uh, programs, as we talked about before, um, there's various kind of Netflix like streaming subscription services that exist in China that allow you to watch a lot of pre recorded TV shows. Um, there's live streaming platforms to let you watch that type of content. Um, people, yeah, they'll download stuff, they'll torrent stuff. Um, there's a lot of different methods to do it, but I think probably at uh, Yoku Tudo are the dominant ones. And then Tencent video as well has become like increasingly more and more well-known for that purpose. Um, But, you know, I think in China people are pretty agnostic. I mean, I don't think that there's one like Mark undisputed market leader in the same way that YouTube exists in uh, the West. The other big thing with Chinese video platforms is like the fidelity of the signal is just really not as good as you'd get in the West because you have the fact that most people are on mobile and, the quality of the videos themselves is quite diminished. Um, and that is always very frustrating as a video maker because you spend so much time trying to make 
high resolution, beautiful content, and it gets crunched down pretty heavily by all these sites. I see. Um, I have a couple of more questions before we finishing. Um, and this is not related to video. Um, I just on your LinkedIn profile that you are the Indiegogo evangelist for China. Um, and I wonder what exactly that means. And I guess you're supposed to help people with their Indiegogo campaign in China. That's part of the thing. Yeah. So Indiegogo is an awesome platform. Um, and the reason that we're working together is, uh, The, the thing that's happened now, as I mentioned before, is that you have this increasing number of Chinese brands that want to go launch their products outside of China. And they have aspirations of becoming you know, global, international, successful companies. And up to now, the ability for a Chinese brand to go outside of China and test the product in the West and see if Western consumers wanted to buy your product was like a really tricky thing to do because you'd have to do a lot of steps and you'd have to spend a lot of money before you could get any validation from the mm -hmm. market. So you'd have to, like, for instance, go online or set up an Amazon store or you can go so far as to set up distribution channels, try to get your stuff in Target or, you know, Best Buy or Amazon or wherever. And that's a very, like, labor and cost and time intensive set of tasks. And the beautiful thing about Indiegogo uh, as a platform is it gives you the ability suddenly as a Chinese brand to put your product online and in the space of a 30-day campaign get an incredible amount of insight about whether or not Western consumers are willing to buy your product before you've set up distribution, before you've set up sales channels, before you've done large-scale manufacturing. Right. Um, so the short version of the sales pitch for them is, is basically just that it's like this transformative new tool to allow Chinese companies to know about the market in the West without all the upfront expenditure that would ordinarily have to go into that type of cross-border marketing. I see. So while you're making them the video, then you're also uh, helping them with Indiegogo. Yeah. And with Indiegogo, you know, I think sometimes there's crossover where we have, you know, for instance, campaigns where we're helping companies that are also listing. There's also situations where we have clients who approach us and maybe the video needs they have are different from what we do, uh, but we'll just help them launch Indiegogo. And there's also situations where we help clients who um, aren't necessarily crowdfunding, right? So we'll just create content and won't live on the platform. But like I said, there's a lot of crossover and We tend to help a lot of these cross-border startups who want to launch outside of China. So there's a real natural fit between what we do and, and the work that Indiegogo does. Nice, nice. Last question before we're ending. Um, and this one we ask um, every guest of ours about two books that you read recently uh, that you think would be helpful for our listeners, related or unrelated to China. Both are okay. Dukai. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you still remember your Chinese. Oh, it's degrading. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would recommend two books. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of lapsed reader. I was an English major in college, a literature major. I used to read so much. And I've really fallen out on that. Now I just read, read WeChat messages. So I'm quite <laughs> That's shorter. delinquent in my, my reading habits. Um, the two I would recommend off the top of my head, number one would be a book called Shoe Dog. And Shoe Dog is a book that is written by the guy who founded Nike. His name is Phil Knight. And okay. it's this fascinating book about the journey that he had from being a college kind of intermediate level runner in Portland, Oregon, to becoming, you know, the, the owner of a globalized business with a market cap of over $10 billion. And the interesting part about the book that I never realized as an entrepreneur in China is that Phil Knight and Nike, uh, a huge part of their story was involved with being like an American entrepreneur who then went on and achieved most of his success through uh, kind of finding his legs in Asia, 
specifically mm. in Japan. Okay. He started out originally importing shoes for a company called Onitsuka uh, that made a pair of shoes called Onitsuka Tigers. And through that whole process of initially just importing product on behalf of a Japanese manufacturer, started to realize that there was like incredible uh, areas of growth and, and also just like deficiencies with the shoe market in the US. And that was like eventually what led him to open up his own company, Nike. But he spends like over almost half the book talking about the whole process of initially going over to Japan, about making deals in Asia, about mm-hmm. the cultural differences, and also about importing and export of products and taxes and duties. And, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur who has worked in Asia, obviously Japan and China are different, but I never realized that even, I just, you hear about Nike as a, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a, an American icon. It's in, you know, just like Westernized thing. You just, just, you think of Michael Jordan, you think of athletics, you don't think of Japan at all. Um, right. But it was a massive part of his story. So really interesting and, and beautifully written book mm-hmm. uh, that I'd highly recommend. And also interesting from a story level, but also an entrepreneurial level. And, and just, yeah, great. Okay. The other one I'd recommend is uh, on the less uplifting side, but much more entertaining side, is Chaos Monkeys. It's called Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. So Chaos Monkeys is a book about this like maniac of a human being who originally uh went through the well he was at goldman sachs and around did multiple different jobs and then ended up in y combinator with his own startup mm-hmm. um he in the process of, of that whole thing ended up selling to twitter um and selling another portion of the business to facebook with their co-founders but basically this guy has has been on this like absolutely insane journey through almost all the major companies and vc firms in silicon valley um but he talks a lot about the sort of moral <laughs> depravity of that whole world and also just about the uh incredible sort of like moral and ethical compromises that he himself had to make along the way but also the ones that he sees made very often within these like big tech companies or big uh venture capital firms or even places like goldman sachs and i think the interesting part about that book is you know as an outsider or even from here in china you look at you know these big fortune 500 companies or the silicon valley companies and you think they're these you know, kind of amazing, visionary, totally egalitarian, meritocratic, great places. And and actually, when you read this book, you start to think, man, like, these people are really fighting for every dollar. And, you know, you think about Mark Zuckerberg or what happened with the Winklevoss twins. Like, actually, there's a lot more kind of cloak and dagger stuff <laughs> that happens behind the scenes that maybe we just never hear about. Yes. So, a really, really interesting book. Thank you. Thank you for... For both of those, we'll add this in the show notes so people can find it easily. How can people find you and get in touch with you? What's the best way? Yeah. So uh, our website is just relay.video. So R-E-L-A-Y dot V-I-D-E-O. Um, and then my my uh, easiest way to contact me is just to go to relay.video. There's a contact us page and you can grab our WeChat or message me directly via that. Um, the CEO yeah, gets yeah. all the messages. Uh, well, it goes to myself and a couple other people at the company, but yeah, that's, that's the easiest way. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Jim, thank you so much for your time and your insights. I really appreciate it. It was great having you. Yeah. Thank you, Shlomo. Uh, and yeah, absolutely a pleasure. And I'm wishing you the best of luck with all your own endeavors and hopefully we can keep talking again soon. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Also, I've, Shlomo and I forgot to say in the intro, happy July 4th. It's been a couple of days since since uh, the math happened, but of course it's an American 
holiday and I'm American. So I know there's a lot of American listeners. So I hope you had a great July 4th and just a little thing that we did at global from Asia. We had a PR campaign with an agency here in Shenzhen where we sent out 500 envelopes and red envelopes. So you guys know in China, it means like it's Hongbao or it means kind of like a holiday uh, way of giving a gift, usually money. And we sent out us dollar currency to these tech companies with uh, Chinese emperors on the face of the presidents as a sticker. Didn't damage any of the currency, but it's been getting pretty interesting coverage here. And I just thought I would mention it on the show. We'll, we'll link it up on the, on the show notes at chinabusinesscast.com. And uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. Happy fourth. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry. China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.